Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the final episode of the Korean War, episode 48. Remember all those episodes ago in the introduction when I said there was 48 episodes? You all thought I was crazy, but here we are. 48 episodes later, this is the final proper episode of the Korean War. You and I have been on quite a journey over the last few months. In nearly a year's runtime, about 30 hours by my estimation... We have recorded a whole wealth of details and brought you guys some of the most incredible, fascinating stories. I bet that now, looking back to where our story began, you never imagined so much could come out of a conflict which is normally relegated to a few sentences in a history textbook. It's safe to say that I really enjoyed researching this era, but what I have especially enjoyed was bringing it to you guys and seeing your feedback. And of course, watching this podcast grow even further as we stepped out into territory somewhat more familiar than our normal subject matter, as familiar as the Korean War can be, at least. We're not at all finished for the year, though, you might be excited to know, and even though we've given you a lot to get through already, I do hope you'll join me in the weeks to come for our Versailles anniversary project as we investigate yet another understudied era of history, but an era that is so important for history, the Treaty of Versailles. 
Before we go there, though, oh, slow down a minute. We do, of course, have to give this series its proper send-off. Make sure you guys check out the conclusion episode, which will place a nice cherry on top of this Korean cake. I could have done a conclusion and an epilogue episode, but I decided to just combine them both together because, well, you know, you've had enough episodes already as it is. So there you go. Check out the conclusion episode. It'll be out soon. This episode here will tie together all the different topics and themes we've come across throughout the series, and it will reiterate the main points too and remind us how we reached to them over the course of the last 47 episodes. Oh, plus those five episodes of the Cold War Crash Course, of course. If you are ready then for our last episode of the Korean War, let's begin. The song of the week this week is brought to you by nothing at all. I just wanted to say a huge thanks to you guys for listening in, for supporting this podcast, for sharing the Korean War all across the web, and to your friends, your history friends, your enemies, your dog, your parents, etc. I really appreciate it. This podcast is obviously really special to me, and the Korean War took a long, super long time to get through in terms of researching it, writing it, recording it, and editing it as well. A lot of work hours, but that's fine. Not complaining. This is my job, pretty much. So I don't really mind. What I do mind is that we've all been through this together, and it's been a great, great time. I have only really received very, very, very small amounts of negative feedback. The overwhelming amount of it has been positive, and thanking me for bringing this conflict out. I just saw that I have a review from someone in the Czech Republic on iTunes, someone who thanked me for looking at the Korean War and bringing it out to them. Someone in the Czech Republic, that is amazing. And thanks to that guy for filling that review out. That would be, of course, a handy way to plug iTunes. But again, not going to do that. Instead, I'm just going to say thanks so much for your support over the last 11 months or so. Good grief. This year has gone by pretty darn quickly, and I've been in Korea for most of it. So thank you all so much for tuning in. I can't say thanks anymore. All I will say is that I hope you'll give as much attention to the Versailles Anniversary Project as you did to the Korean War. To those of you who are already hopelessly behind with the Korean War, I apologise that the episode's been coming out so much. But as we said, unless we do this, we'll be running the Korean War and the Versailles Anniversary Project side by side. And my OCD tendencies will not allow that. So here we are. In any case, guys, that's all I really wanted to say. Didn't want to plug anything. Didn't want to say support me on blah, blah, blah. I literally just wanted to say a huge thanks. You're great. You're amazing. And even if this is only your first time listening to the Korean War, you're wondering who the heck I am, thank you as well for tuning in. Even just by downloading this episode, you help When Diplomacy Fell out. And you help me out too, because I get to see that this subject, the Korean War, actually means something to people, just as it has come to mean something to me, as we'll explore more in the conclusion episode. For now, though, the song of the week this week... Our last song of the week, in fact, and you guys have been really enjoying these as well, our last song of the week is, well, it's not actually, like, all that unique or special. I mean, it is, because it's a cool song, but I didn't pick something that I've been saving to the last moment. I just picked something that I liked, and this is something that I like. It's called Streets of New York. It's by Billy Murray. It was released in 1907. You guys, make sure you enjoy it. This final song of the week and we will be back with episode 48 of The Korean War. In dear old New York, it's remarkable, very. The name on the lamppost is unnecessary. You merely have to see the girls to know what street you're on. Fifth Avenue beauties and dear old Broadway girls, the tailor-made shoppers, the Avenue girls, they're strictly all right, but they're different quite in the different parts of town. In old New York, in old New York, the peach crop's always fine. They're sweet and fair, and on the square, the maids of Manhattan for mine. You cannot see in gay Paris, in London or in Cork. The queens you'll meet on any street in old New York. 
above a wither is shining or showery That doesn't cut any ice on the bowery Every night till broad daylight They dance and sing and call The girls are all game and they're jolly good fellows They're not very swell but they're none of them jealous They go it alone in a style of their own On the bowery in New York in old New York, in old New York, the peach crops always fine. They're sweet and fair, and on the square, the maids of Manhattan for mine. You cannot see in gay Paris, in London, or in Cork, the queen you meet on There is no complicated answer to the question of who started the Korean War. The answer is simple, really. It was Stalin. It was Joseph Stalin. Without Stalin, the war in Korea would never have come to pass. The Truman administration certainly made its passage easier and did little to deter the Soviets from helping to launch it, but Washington never planned to attack the North. Unlike Kim Il-sung, Washington and certainly Syngman Rhee recognised the importance of being seen as the defender not the aggressor. It wouldn't be hyperbole to state that the major reason so many states contributed towards the Korean War was because on the surface at least, the conflict appeared to be a straightforward example of a weak state being attacked by a stronger neighbour who simply could not be tolerated. Under the terms of the United Nations, protecting those victims of international aggression was especially high on the list of aims set out in its charter. If the United Nations would not respond to this act of aggression, then it was no better than the doomed League of Nations and all of its pathetic supporters, and all they had failed to achieve. It's worth making the point as well that several American statesmen, including John Foster Dulles, had been active in the interwar years in their attempts to sign the United States up to the League of Nations. Several statesmen who endured the Second World War and emerged from it into this new world in Western Europe as well, were politicians of an old order that inevitably had played some role in the League of Nations. They were mindful of its failures and shortcomings, of the naivety of its founding members, and of the impossibility in policing the entire world. The Anglo-French bloc had posed as the guarantors of peace in the interwar years, so long as it suited their national imperial interests to do so, of course. Now, in the early 1950s, it was the United States who was given the task, alongside the British for a short time, of ensuring that the post-war order didn't go the same way as that which had followed the First World War. There is not enough space here to examine the thought processes of those who may have believed, cynically or realistically depending on your point of view, that another world war was destined to follow the second. This wasn't down to some inescapable international rivalry, necessarily, but because the pattern of human behaviour had told them that a third world war was in the pipeline. How could anyone believe, after the symbolic pageantry which had followed the Great War, and which had demanded that nothing so horrible should ever happen again, that human beings were really capable of peaceful coexistence. Indeed, if one was to look for inspiration to a peaceful time, Europeans in particular would have to think back to the 19th century, to Britain's Victorian era, an exercise which may have been hard for many to imagine, never mind to remember. The United Nations have been meant to stand as a bulwark against total war ever recurring in the world again. In the context of the early 1950s, the United Nations seemed to work. Thanks to the Soviet absence and the lack of powers from former colonies or regions not necessarily sympathetic to the Western worldview, the United Nations Security Council provided the first, and so far the only example in history, of a unified collective security action. Those that moved to save South Korea from aggression, to stop the spread of communism or to prove that the United Nations' guiding principles could in fact work, may have acted for the most part nobly. Yet as we know now, this exercise in collective security was possible for one reason, and one reason above all. The United Nations gathered a coalition sponsored and supported by the United States because the Soviet Union allowed them to, and because Joseph Stalin believed it was in Moscow's strategic interest and in the interest of his own pursuit of power 
to draw the West into conflict with the communist Asians, be they North Korean or Chinese. By this point, you are surely used to me emphasising Stalin as one of the guiding forces during the conflict. I've also demonstrated several times that even when the northern invasion was underway, Stalin did all he could to manipulate the conflict, with the sole aim of drawing in the Chinese foremost in his mind. If the Chinese intervened in Korea, they could not finish their civil war by invading Taiwan, they could not then repair their relations with the West, and they could not then rely on friends in the world other than the Soviet Union, other than Stalin. While I make no secret of my immense dislike for Stalin as a figure in history, considering all the misery and death he caused for so many millions of people, I found his use of diplomacy, ever the favourite plaything of dictators, as fascinating as it was astonishing that Stalin was so adept at manipulating his foes that he was able to draw the Chinese and Americans into the same conflict that he managed to use the cloak of history after the event to effectively disguise his involvement under a haze of uncertainty are all remarkable facts. I have to emphasise that most works on the Korean War tend to underrate the significant role Stalin played in its outbreak. The consensus put forward by several studies I have seen appears to reside somewhere between Stalin is a very suspicious figure and he probably had something to do with it to Stalin is very suspicious for sure but you just can't count the person of Kim Il-sung out. Many historians, understandably affected by the present-day image of the Kim dynasty, take it as axiomatic that because the Kims are so dictatorial, paranoid and fantastical in their rule, they have always been this way. Furthermore, because of North Korea's loud role in the camp of nuclear powers, the Korean War is viewed through the lens of North Korea always seeking to gain some kind of leverage, always fighting for its interests, always pushing for its own policy line. By creating this impression, it becomes easier to then argue that the ruthlessly ambitious Kim Il-sung persuaded the Soviet leader Joseph Stalin to make the Korean War happen. The tale, they claimed, wagged the dog. It should be apparent by now that this presentation of history is absolutely full of holes for several reasons. We must not read history backwards and see the current state of North Korea as proof of Pyongyang's ability to position itself at the centre of belligerent, aggressive foreign policy actions. Kim Il-sung was ambitious, ruthless, cunning, opportunistic and necessarily brave, but his commending feature to Moscow was that he was an avowed Stalinist, someone who took orders and who understood what side his bread was buttered on. Without Stalin, not only would there never have been a Korean War, there wouldn't have been a Kim dynasty or even a communist party in Korea. The native communist party in Korea, north or south, was never more powerful or influential than its dominance over a few industrial communes or peasant farms. We should also remember that what Stalin did in North Korea to build up the Communist Party in his image, he had already done extensively in Eastern Europe. It was like lather, rinse, repeat for him as he selected a loyal leader, purged the competition and began the gradual takeover of North Korea's political processes. History, for instance, does not remember all that well the name of Cho Man-seek. I mean, remember that guy? You probably barely can. Even though Cho was by far the most popular figure in North Korea in 1945. Since he was not a communist or a Stalinist, though, Cho Man-seek gradually faded from view to make way for Kim Il-sung. But what about the alternative viewpoint which presents the Korean War as a civil war? Isn't there a risk that by focusing so much on the foreign actors we would miss the role that the Koreans themselves actually played in it? Well certainly you could argue that my coverage of the Korean War hasn't emphasised or examined the Koreans as much as it perhaps should have. I did this for a number of reasons, but one of the major reasons was that my interpretation was focused on the Korean War in the context of the early Cold War. And I didn't want our focus to become distracted by the argument, which I find unconvincing at its core, that the Korean War is actually a Korean civil war. If you know me by now, then you know that I've always hated the black and white of historical debates. The Korean War was not just a civil war, or just a war involving several international actors. It was quite simply a mess of issues, of debates and of tragedies. Reductionism always compromises the actual history tale in the name of making the pieces fit into a certain box. History is not tidy, nor does it fit into perfect methodological boxes. 
Only those removed from the conflict's course and cause would argue for the Korean War to be explained solely in terms of it being a civil war. What a surprise then, that we could find a British cabinet minister in 1950 totally removed from either the American decision-making process or from any war discussions, giving his two cents on the situation and then later being quoted by people who want to prove a point. At the outbreak of the Korean War, the British Minister for Public Works, Richard Stokes, made an interesting comparison with the Korean Peninsula to the American continent, and in the process contributed to one of the key debates on the Korean War, that idea that the conflict represented a civil war between Koreans. Stokes noted that, In the American Civil War, the Americans would never have tolerated for a single moment the setting up of an imaginary line between the forces of North and South, and there can be no doubt as to what would have been their reaction if the British had intervened in force on behalf of the South. This parallel is a close one, because in America the conflict was not merely between two groups of Americans, but was between two conflicting economic systems, as is the case in Korea. Stokes' comparison is of course full of holes. You can't simply compare the Korean Peninsula to the United States before its civil war, Comparisons of countries don't work that way. Indeed, the imaginary line Stokes alludes to here was also not imaginary. In Korea, the 38th parallel had of course not been made to last, as it was anticipated in 1945 that the United Nations would sort out some kind of solution for Korea in the future. However, it was thanks to the Korean War that the 38th parallel acquired the significance that it did. During the war as well, both Douglas MacArthur and Mao Zedong framed their policies on the moment when the Rubicon, or the 38th parallel, was crossed. Had it been imaginary, getting United Nations support for crossing into North Korea on the 7th of October 1950 would never have been so difficult or, subsequently, controversial. Now, that is not to say that I spurn any suggestion that there were substantial civil elements to the conflict. I think you'd have to be ignorant of the facts to claim that. The danger is when we try to claim it is one or the other, we then skim over the actions of other powers like the Soviets or Americans, and we miss the bigger picture. Take, for example, the following watered-down account given by Bruce Cummings, probably the most prolific proponent of the idea that the Korean War was a civil war. Cummings said... The Korean War was, and is, a civil war. Only this conception can account for the 100,000 lives lost in the South before June 1950, and the continuance of the conflict down to the present, in spite of claims that this was really Stalin's war, or that Moscow's puppets in Pyongyang would surely collapse after the USSR met oblivion itself in 1991. Bruce Cummings' work bringing out the Korean elements of the conflict further into the open has been invaluable for the historiographical record on the Korean War, that's for sure, but in my view he seems to go too far in the direction of reductionism here. Why, one might ask, can the Korean War not be a conflict of international proportions with some underlying civil elements? This indeed is how I would view the Korean War, since any focus on one aspect comes at the expense of the other. We cannot, of course, ignore the fact that the division of the peninsula created a great deal of bitterness and that it also ruined a great deal of lives. We also cannot deny, and I was very careful not to do so, that Syngman Rhee's regime was inherently flawed, and in many senses just as dictatorial as his communist neighbours. This American penchant for supporting the lesser of two evils, because he happened to not be a communist, was actually repeated with equally infamous results in Vietnam. But the danger in demonising the figure of Syngman Rhee too much is that we can come to invent and attribute schemes to him which he was never in any position to carry out, such as the invasion of the North. For the record, claiming that Rhee would have invaded the North if he had the capabilities to do so is not a valid argument for proving that he somehow did instigate the Korean War. Hopefully by now we've put that theory to bed, and I use the term theory very loosely there. To reiterate a point made by my podcast peer, Paul Kendrick, whose podcast on the Korean War you should definitely check out, especially as he's begun to examine Vietnam now, link in the description of course, to claim that Rhee began the Korean War is akin to claiming that the Poles began the Second World War. It is ridiculous, insulting, and should not be humoured in a public debate, so let's just move on.
I should add that I'm not the only historian who upholds that the Korean War was a mishmash of civil and international concerns. Historians like Peter Lowe, John Merrill, and Burton Kaufman all subscribe to this approach to the Korean War, which is styled as the centrist position, as it refrains from swaying towards one side or the other. Now, I know that might sound like I'm just sitting on the fence for the sake of pleasing everyone, but hopefully you know by now that I'm not. A further example of the centrist view is provided by the Japanese historian Meneo Nakajima in his article on the Sino-Soviet disagreements and confrontations during the Korean War. Nakajima summarizes in perhaps the most articulate, succinct manner what the conflict actually was when he wrote, The situation in Korea was such that conflict could break out in the form of a war for national liberation, but although the internal situation was an indispensable catalyst, it is difficult to imagine that North Korea had nothing to do with Stalinist strategy. After Stalin's death, after all, a ceasefire was obtained through Chinese diplomatic efforts. Right after the death, the Moscow group in North Korea were purged. In China as well, those with close connections to the Soviet strategy in Korea were purged. This last point underlines an important issue which Bruce Cummings missed. True, the Kim regime outlasted the confines of the Cold War, but the fact that the Korean War itself did not long survive following Stalin's death also tells a story. Indeed, the removal of Stalin and its subsequent impact on the pursuit of peace talks speaks far more convincingly to Stalin's personal involvement in the war than does the endurance of the Kim dynasty after the death of the Cold War. For this reason, I believe Cummings' conclusions miss the boat somewhat. But again, who the heck am I? I mean, this guy has written an awful lot on the Korean War. It's just my opinion, supported by the opinions of several others. But I also appreciate that point made by Mineo Nakajima, that the internal situation in Korea was an indispensable catalyst for the outbreak of war. From the moment Stalin landed on the Korean Peninsula, as the ploy to drive a wedge between the People's Republic of China and the West, that peninsula's very demographic makeup recommended it to him. In addition to its geographically sensitive location to Mao Zedong, the fractured nature of the Korean people, and the uneasy division of their lands made them ideal candidates for Stalin to sow discord and scheme to his heart's content. To understand what I mean, remember how Stalin presented the conflict to Kim Il-sung. The North Korean leader was at times optimistic, then cautious, depending on his mood and on the latest news from the world regarding Korea. Thanks to the pre-existing turmoil in the peninsula, though, Stalin was able to convince Kim that the South would erupt in revolution once Seoul fell, and Kim went along with this idea because, to him, it made the most sense. Of course, he also went along with it because it was what he wanted to hear. But Stalin had always been adept at telling people what they wanted to hear for his own reasons. There was no other place in the world that presented such an ideal opportunity for Stalin's schemes. No other place was divided between communism and Rhee's form of democracy, and no other place in the world possessed the perfectly hazy position in American strategic considerations, or gave the Chinese nightmares like the Korean Peninsula did. At the same time as well, the peninsula was ideally removed from any direct Soviet strategic concern, and Stalin proved content to dispense with Kim's regime and pass it over to the Chinese during the course of the war, which of course remains one of the most enduring legacies of the conflict. It is precisely because the North Korean regime was passed from Moscow to Beijing that the Kim dynasty remained in place following the end of the Cold War. The real question then isn't how North Korea survived the Cold War, but whether North Korea would survive the democratization of the People's Republic of China if such an event, however apparently unlikely, ever took place. As it stood in the early 1950s, the Korean War was a net benefit to Stalin. Even if you don't believe my research and you think the conflict only started because of Kim Il-sung or mostly because of Kim Il-sung. To deny that it was to Stalin's benefit is to deny the cynical, realistic worldview which Stalin certainly subscribed to. As the historian Max Beloff wrote, By any calculation of realpolitik, the Korean War doubly benefited the Russians. It locked up a large part of the available strength of the Western world in the remotest and least important of the threatened fronts, and it confirmed the breach between communist China and the Western world, thus underlining China's need of Soviet support. 
In such a way, do many historians come very close to our conclusions on Stalin's involvement, without quite going all the way. Another historian to make the connection between Stalin's strategic interest and gains from the Korean War, without explicitly blaming the Kremlin leader for the conflict, was Catherine Weathersby, who wrote in light of the release of a trove of Soviet documents in the 1990s. As Weathersby noted on the course of the historiographical debate on the Korean War, most early accounts of the period assumed that North Korea could not have mounted the attack on South Korea without Moscow's support, but revisionist literature of the 1970s and 80s challenged that assumption, drawing on American and British documents released in the 70s. Since the trend of later scholarship was to depreciate the significance of the Soviet role in the war, the release of a large body of Russian records showing the centrality and breadth of that role has caused a sharp change of course in historical literature. Indeed, as far as Soviet involvement goes, the release of the Russian records, intended, believe it or not, as a gift from Boris Yeltsin to the South Korean president in 1994, provided historians with a brand new set of revelations to wrap their heads around. As late as 1999, Russia's diplomatic academy was still adding to this collection, and it is entirely possible that, in the future, still more light and perhaps even more conclusive evidence tying Stalin to the outbreak of the war will be found. As it stands now, we're left with some considerable, weighty and historically damning evidence that links the Soviet chairman to the outbreak of the Korean War. As the historian William Stuck put it, North Korea may have been an assertive pawn in the international chess game, but it was a pawn nonetheless. The division of Korea into its two halves often obscures the fact that the peninsula as a whole had been devastated and impoverished by so many years of struggle and deliberate exploitation under Japanese rule, even before the Korean War actually started. In autumn 1945, Korea as a peninsula was free from a foreign ruler for the first time in several hundred years. The act of rebuilding the shattered land would require considerable investment and resources. Kim Il-sung, in other words, would have enough on his plate as it was without contemplating a war with the South. The fact that he found it necessary to appeal to Stalin about launching a war in 1949, and that Stalin then refused, speaks to the fact that Stalin wished to control the peninsula's destiny, and that he was already in control of Kim's regime. Since Kim was so reliant upon Moscow for aid and investment, it stands to reason that Pyongyang would be utterly dependent upon Stalin for any notions of aggressive warfare. This, as we have seen, was proved correct by the massive armed reinforcement of the North Korean People's Army with Soviet arms, armour and advisors, as well as the request for Mao Zedong to release much of North Korea's volunteers. Catherine Weathersby, in light of the release of the documentation, puts to bed the furor over who started the war by putting the case in simple terms, when she notes... The documents are clear that it was Stalin who made the decision about whether or not to invade South Korea. In August 1949, Kim Il-sung requested permission a second time and was again refused. In January 1950, he pleaded for an audience with Stalin to discuss the possibility once more, particularly in light of the recent victory of the Chinese Communist Party. At the end of the month, Stalin informed Kim that he would, at last, help him in this matter. This decision was taken without consultation with Mao Zedong. Allegedly for security reasons, Stalin instructed Kim to limit knowledge of his plan to the highest officials within North Korea. Of course, we already know why the affair was kept secret from Mao. Stalin wished to use a war in Korea to preempt a successful conclusion of the Chinese Civil War with the invasion of Taiwan by instigating an additional conflict on the Chinese doorstep. Faced with the Korean War, Mao would not be allowed to watch the Allies destroy Pyongyang unchallenged, and the establishment of a Western satellite on the peninsula would be ruinous to Chinese security and Mao's prestige. Stalin was the facilitator for Kim Il-sung's aggressive act. Here, Catherine Weathersby puts forward the same facts we've encountered before, but she also makes the important point following this that The Russian documents have shed considerable light on Stalin's rationale, but the question remains open to interpretation. And this is a critical point for our series, guys. Stalin would never have written down precisely what it was that he planned to use the Korean War for. 
he would never have explicitly stated that the Korean War was his device for alienating China from the West in a policy directly concerned with the tethering of Mao to Moscow and the resulting empowering of the Soviet Union and his personal leadership which would follow. Stalin was notoriously inactive in the writing department, a fact which has enraged and frustrated historians in equal measure, and while we would love to have something equivalent to Truman, Eisenhower or even MacArthur's memoirs, because Stalin never countenanced his role in the USSR as anything other than that of a supreme leadership figure, deconstructing the myth of his personality cult with a readable memoir was just never going to fly. For this reason, among, of course, many others, myself and countless historians have since been faced with the task of interpretation. This task has become easier and more accurate, as more information on Stalin, the Soviet Union and the Korean War generally has been released. But for the sake of transparency, I have to emphasise that my theories throughout this series are the result of interpretation. I looked at the evidence, gathered it all together, let it simmer in my head, and then I went with the approach to the conflict which made the most sense to me and to a few others. Catherine Weathersby, for example, was armed with the same documents that Richard C. Thornton had, but she concluded that the reason for Stan's intervention was his view that the international situation had changed, seen in the victory of the Chinese communists, the availability of Korean expats for the conflict, and the perceived weakness of the United States, seen in Washington's refusal to save Chiang Kai-shek. Since the United States had lost China, Weathersby notes, Stalin believed they would also refrain from fighting for South Korea. Our analysis of behaviour during the first few weeks of the war demonstrate that the success of North Korea was not a preferred outcome, and this in my mind is the smoking gun which sinks any ship claiming to see Stalin's actions in Korea as genuinely aggressive or expansionist in that region. They were so only in so far as Stalin wished to accumulate more power, following China's tethering to him on the successful conclusion of his plan, but not because, as Weathersby claims, Stalin wanted to see Kim Il-sung victorious. If he had wanted to see the North Korean flag fly across the peninsula, Stalin wouldn't have actively sabotaged and misled Kim at every turn, or given him the erroneous impression that South Korea was ripe for the taking and would fall to him once Seoul fell to his soldiers. Indeed, to put it even further, as we've noted as well, if Stalin wanted Kim Il-sung to have been victorious, Kim Il-sung would have been victorious. But again, historian Alexandre Mansarov held similar documents, and he believed that Stalin's word Korea was a defensive policy, pursued out of his perception that the West was constraining communist expansion and poising Simon Rhee's regime to invade the North. Furthermore, Mansarov claims Stalin and Mao felt inherently insecure at American post-war expansion seen in NSC 68's early implications, and Kim Il-sung was able to feed into this sense of insecurity by playing the two figures off one another and highlighting the reputational cost they would have to pay if they, Mao and Stalin, did not vigorously support the cause of communist-led Korean unification. It is, of course, incredible to note that two historians armed with the same documents take very different approaches and draw very different conclusions, but as we know, nuggets of truth to Mansarov's interpretation exist. Mao did feel the need to intervene in the name of his reputation, in addition to his concern for strategy, and Stalin acted in Korea surely aware that NSC 68 would compel Washington to act with force in Korea rather than let the theatre slip away. If you believe my theories, then it follows that Stalin relied upon the West tenaciously holding on to Korea, and he anticipated that, flush with victory, the American-led coalition would then surge up the peninsula and spook Mao, completing his plan. Stalin did not account for the rapid impact of NSC 68, the massive rearmament and defensive budget increases that followed, or the integral fact that the Truman administration needed the precise ingredients which Stalin seemed to be handing them to make all of this possible, that being a limited war in a far-flung corner of the world. The American angle, twinned with the Soviet one, forms the core of my revisionist approach to the Korean War. When I first introduced you guys to the idea that the United States wanted to fight a conflict in Korea, I know for a fact that I turned some people off, and that's okay. I mean, I was told so in a few not-so-pleasant emails, but they were very, very small in number. 
I suppose for some the idea is a bridge too far and I understand that, but I should emphasize again that I'm far from the only person to hold such views. And now, hopefully, you guys can at least see where I reached these conclusions and how I got to them. In my mind, there are two big scenarios for the Truman administration. Number one, either they were so inefficient and ill-informed of world affairs that they saw neither the northern invasion of South Korea coming in June or the Chinese invasion of October slash November, or scenario number two, permitting these escalations in the international system was all part of a wider plan to achieve a far more important, lofty goal which American leaders believed would secure American interests for decades to come. Again, we see the pattern that several historians note the significance of the conflict for these reasons. Stephen Tucker, writing for the Organization of American Historians magazine, noted in the year 2000 that One of America's least understood wars, it, Korea, nonetheless marked an important transition to the Cold War national security state. Previously, America had radically disarmed after every war. World War II was no exception, and the United States was thus woefully unprepared to fight even a limited war in the Korean Peninsula against a second-rate military power. The war was a powerful factor in the rearmament of the United States. Soon the defence budget had quadrupled, and the United States emerged with the most powerful military in the world, a state of affairs that continues to the present. Were the budget increases that are noted here simply a byproduct of the Korean War or a major goal of the Truman administration instead? I would uphold the latter, and since I do, I should reiterate why I believe it to be so. By the time peace was signed in late July 1953, the United States had expanded many resources and exhausted much diplomatic goodwill, attempting to have its way in Korea. The new Eisenhower administration had not proved as capable in ending the conflict as Eisenhower had intimated during the election campaign, and weariness over Korea reached a fever pitch just as Stalin died, and a strange transformation seemed to wash over the communist negotiating tactics. Taking advantage of this, we saw how the Indian delegation, of all people, upped their activity to get their compromise resolution on the prisoner issue seen and eventually approved which paved the way then for the conclusion of the war. Eisenhower's administration was therefore immensely fortunate that Stalin died and the communists reacted as they did. Far from blustering being the prime reason for Mao's compromise, it was the emergence in Moscow of a cabal of nervous successors that really helped do the trick. China was not about to get any support from the Soviets now, and the realisation of this fact moved Mao to end the conflict, rather than waiting on the potentially explosive support that Stalin at one point at least, had seemed interested in giving. Of course, we know that Stalin's support, if it had been given, would have prolonged the war and extended the period of alienation between China and the West. One could argue that it was the communists then, with help from India, that helped move the peace along. Understandably, of course, Eisenhower's administration found it difficult to get to grips with a conflict that had been out of their hands for two and a half years, and this fact alone speaks to the idea that Stalin's imprint was unmistakably on the Korean War. In addition, it also underlines the costliness and lack of any perceived benefit which the United States gained in participating in the war. To those soldiers who returned home, the war's final months left a sour taste in their mouth. It was the first conflict America hadn't been able to convincingly win, even if it hadn't been necessarily lost. Eisenhower's administration, in addition, inherited the now swollen defence budget which the previous caretakers had created. The true victory, I would argue, was found in what America could now do in the world with this swollen defence budget. Her massive military potential which would make itself felt during the rest of the Cold War, rather than what she had supposedly gained by propping up Syngman Rhee in South Korea. The question which lingered on, unanswered, for only a few years, was where to spend and how to justify these massive increases in the context of the Cold War. While he was new to the role, Eisenhower proved remarkably adept at advancing the new policy after Truman had passed him the baton. Containment was the order of the day, and thanks to his predecessor, Eisenhower would be able to pay for the latest exercise in containment, even while this exercise in Vietnam would leave a far less pleasant flavour in everyone's mouths. A few hours ago, Dean Ben Phu has fallen. Its defence of 57 days and nights will go down in history as one of the most heroic of all time. 
the defenders, composed of French and native forces, inflicted staggering losses on the enemy, and the French soldiers showed that they have not lost either the will or the skill to fight, even under the most terrible conditions. And it showed that Vietnam can produce soldiers who have the qualities needed to enable them to defend their country. So were Dean Acheson, President Truman, and several other high-ranking figures and several more important intelligence operatives responsible for the greatest set of military and strategic blunders, not to mention gross intelligence failures, arguably ever experienced in the Cold War? Or were they responsible for preparing the United States for what was to come, on the understanding that only the medicine of limited war and only the location of Korea could possibly accomplish this long-term goal? It was particularly convenient for the Truman administration's interests, and likely no accident either, that certain figures were in place, like General MacArthur to take the fall, and that other figures were in place, like General Matthew Ridgway, to pick up the pieces of the military situation. Likely surprised by their own successes, America managed in the space of 18 months to achieve its desired increases, as the defence budget sat at nearly $80 billion by the end of 1951. A pretty impressive increase when you note that before the Korean War it stood at about 15 billion. With this success, it is little wonder that ending the Korean War became the new goal, that this new task became a war in and of itself could not have been foreseen by the Truman administration, but at least so long as a war against communism waged somewhere, the rearming, rebuilding, reorganizing American military complex would have a place to focus its now considerable energies. It is worth repeating then the questions asked hypothetically, of course, by C. Clyde Mitchell in his article for the International Journal, which was written in late 1950, in other words, just as all this Korean stuff was happening before people's eyes. C. Clyde Mitchell wrote, Are we to have a series of world crises until we succeed in reducing most of civilization to radioactive debris? In the 50s, Americas are being induced to think that the world's ills are all caused by communism, and that communism must therefore be crushed. In the 40s, it was fascism. What will it be in the 60s and the 70s? Can't we get to the bottom of this? Both the communist and the fascist attempts at world conquest must be feeding on some deep-rooted human problems, and the destruction of one or the other of the major world powers will not solve the problems. Indeed, Mitchell was tragically correct here. The American public, as much as the American government, needed an enemy to justify its massive offensive and industrial capacity, and the Cold War, represented by its series of hot conflicts across the world, provided this justification. Concerned though he was for the sustainability of making someone the enemy in the American mind, Mitchell provides us with an unsettling contemporary view, as he and many of his peers would have viewed the situation in late 1950. Mitchell wrote, it may prove that the destruction of Little Korea, and she will be virtually destroyed in this war, was fortunate for the United States, shocking her into complete mobilization for World War III. Harry Truman's immediate and angry response to this challenge to the integrity of the United States and the Union of Free Nations of the World may prove to be the most beautifully timed, most historically accurate piece of pure intuition the world has lately seen. The response of the United States and the leaders of the United Nations is heartening, sensible, and right. Heartening, sensible, and right it would prove, since in a strategic sense, the Korean War made the American activism during the Cold War militarily, economically, and strategically possible. On the altar of the wider Western strategy, would the Korean people be sacrificed? Truman, as much as his clued-in peers, believed that this sacrifice would prove worth it in the end. Following Korea, the United States would never be the same again, and Washington would take its place not as a power among equals, but as a military superpower with no betters in the world. It was a status which the Second World War had helped to create, but which the Korean War helped bring to its complete potential. Considering this, the United States today owes a great deal to the Korean War, perhaps more than we will ever fully know. Yet while one could reasonably claim that the current state of American global involvement and military readiness was a legacy of those American leaders, the current Korean state of affairs can be traced with a grim certainty 
to Stalin's scheming mind. Every casualty that was suffered in that conflict and every war scare which has followed since represents a set of singularly tragic testaments to that mustachioed Kremlin leader's ruthlessness, cunning and cynicism. The current, smiling, overweight, dear leader of North Korea indeed owes his status to Joseph Stalin and to the deals which his grandfather made with that devil almost 70 years ago. So that's it, history friends. Throughout this 48-episode series with five Cold War Crash Course episodes as well, don't forget, we've brought you the most up-to-date, detailed, and diplomatically obsessed account of the Korean War available in audio form. That it also contains not a small shred of revisionist, controversial viewpoints means that we may have ruffled some feathers along the way, but hopefully you guys will now see that there are many, many ways to look at the Korean War. I also hope that you can now appreciate the conflict for what it was, a pivotally important event in the history of the Cold War, in the development of the United States, and in the list of schemes perpetuated by one Joseph Stalin. We have a few more words to say before we shut up this Korean War shop for good, so make sure you guys stop by the conclusion episode on this series, which will be released very soon. Until then, history friends and patrons, my name is Zach, and you have been listening to the final proper episode in When Diplomacy Fells a Series on the Korean War. Oh, boo-hoo, parting is such sweet sorrow. But I wanted to say again a huge thanks for listening to the Korean War. Thanks for supporting us in any way that you may have done. And I'll be seeing you all rather soon. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 